Okay, in your Bibles, brothers and sisters, Romans chapter 5. Romans 5, and in just a moment I'm going to read from verse 6. Romans chapter 5, verse 6. As you're turning there, I believe we also have a, um, uh, a, a part of our statement of faith to read. And so uh, we're going to do that together, and then I will um, uh, read from Romans 5, and I hope that where we get this statement uh, from is uh, self-explanatory. This is just one, one passage that we'll be reading of many. All of Scripture testifies to this um, uh, great truth, but let's, let's read together. We believe that God's Son died at Calvary to effect propitiation, reconciliation, redemption, and atonement for His elect people. God bore testimony to His acceptance of His Son's work by raising Him from the dead for our justification. Amen. Let's read from Romans chapter 5, verse 6. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have received now reconciliation. Amen. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would give us wisdom, clarity, boldness, and understanding. Help us, uh, Lord, uh, that we might be strengthened in the faith, that we would um, take hold of these rich truths and find in them joy and hope uh, in uh, even our difficulties and the sufferings of life, that we would be comforted hereby. In Jesus' name, amen. Today is Remembrance Day. Sometimes as a church, we make more of a noise about it than other times. The truth is we are a, uh, uh, we are a, a Christian church. We are a Christ-centered church. We are a Baptist church. And within all of that uh, comes within it a, a free church. We are not beholden to any uh, nation or uh, secular calendar of any any form. Sometimes we might tip our hat to things that um, uh, are going on around us. Sometimes we, we might not. It is right, though, and appropriate that, that as citizens or at least residents of this country that we reflect on our freedom to worship today and this evening. And the um, while we may reject the uh, sort of chest-thumping militarism of uh, one might think bygone days, perhaps, uh, we, we must 
give God thanks that in his sovereign purposes, he has appointed uh, governments and governments to punish that which is evil and to defend that which is good. And we must be very clear that the reality of our, uh, our world is totally shaped, particularly by uh, two global conflicts within the past century that Remembrance Day was set up specifically to commemorate uh, the sacrifice of people um, in the face of um, uh, encroaching tyranny. And the world that we live in would, I trust we understand, look vastly different. There is some question on the basis of uh, uh, culture, ethnicity, faith, and any number of other factors by which we might wonder, would any of us even be here? Some, perhaps, who ticked various boxes, but uh, would we be here? Would we be, would we be worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ? Would we be confessing things about his sacrifice? Uh, it was completely unplanned that our comments on the sacrifice of Jesus would coincide with uh, a day of national remembrance for the sacrifice of our, our nation's soldiers. Uh, we, however, can find in these things something of an illustration, I trust. The question is asked, why would someone give their life? And oftentimes by armchair observers. Why? There are uh, perhaps within um, us uh, uh, some... Uh, little pacifists that anytime we see someone die uh, in self-sacrifice, uh, there is a grief and a sense perhaps of uh, meaninglessness if we do not examine at times the whole picture, sometimes even when we examine the whole picture. The reasons for which someone would lay down their life may seem obscure. But if you were to ask such people, or if you were to read their writings, and if you caught them in a good frame of mind, there would be a good number who would say, we are dying for our nation. We are dying for our people. We are pre prepared to die for our, our freedom, for our families, for our homes. That is the spirit at the, the heart of sacrifice, uh, a love of something greater than self. And others might not understand that. Others might not understand why do people die in conflicts that seem to have little to do with them? Many people were wondering why. Why are there um, uh, uh, British soldiers ex-soldiers and American ex-soldiers who have crossed over to Ukraine to fight without pay. They're not mercenaries. They're, they're just going. Why would they do that? There are principles and ideals that people hold dear. And there are threats that people weigh. And they, as they examine those things, they consider something greater than themselves could be a cause, it could be people, even people they do not even know. Some of you know my nephew, Randall. Uh, Randall turned two today. It's a strange name, perhaps. People wonder, what, what sort of name is that, Randall? Um, 
it is, believe it or not, a fairly, um, at one stage, it would have been a more common um, American name, but I think it probably is uh, out of fashion. Uh, why would my brother call his son Randall? Well, I think he would have called him that whether his birthday coincided with uh, American Veterans Day or British Remembrance Day in any case. But he called him that to commemorate uh, a relative of, of ours, uh, a great uncle of ours, my grandmother's brother, who himself died in conflict and was uh, later awarded uh, um, uh, the Silver Star for uh, valor in the face of uh, an enemy uh, uh, force. The, um, the story, uh, uh, as it is related by the president himself in his um, uh, commendation, uh, said that Sergeant Harvey was leading a road-clearing patrol through low-rolling coastal plains. His patrol consisted mainly of soldiers who were not combat veterans, which necessitated him being near the front of the patrol. While searching along the road, he was leading his men around a small open area when an undetermined size enemy force initiated contact. At this time, he set the example for his patrol by charging the enemy. The enemy force was completely routed from its positions by the surprise assault and fled in all directions. Sergeant Harvey, despite the direct enemy small arms fire, encouraged his men to pursue the withdrawing enemy. At this time, a tractor near Sergeant Harvey tripped a landmine. The resulting blast wounded him in both legs and in his arm. Though severely wounded, he continued to direct his troops until he became unconscious from the loss of blood. Sergeant First Class Harvey's personal bravery and devotion to duty were in keeping with the highest traditions of the military service and reflect great credit upon himself, his unit, and the United States Army. He was killed and posthumously awarded for gallantry in action while engaged in military operations against an armed hostile force. Why, why do people do such things? Uh, there are many stories like that. There is something that we see of the gospel, uh, even in the muckiness of human conflict and sacrifice, that as people lay down their lives for others, as they... That particular citation uh, read, um, as they set the example for their people, uh, we, we see something of Jesus Christ, the unfathomable riches of God's grace for us in Jesus Christ, but without all of the impurities and imperfections and sins that are characteristic of all of us as humans. The Lord Jesus, in total perfection, took on the enemy forces of death, sin, the grave, 
All of these, all of these things that are uh, given pride of place in your life, idols, injustices, immorality, the world, the flesh, the devil, all, all principalities and powers, all things that have dominance in this sinful, fallen world, Jesus Christ takes them all on. And Scripture does tell us that He lived and He died to set us an example. However, there are some who would, especially perhaps on a day like today, when we talk about the example of brave men and women who have given their lives in sacrifice for their country, uh, there, there will be people who actually teach that only an example is what, what Jesus was. But he, he, he lived as an example. Jesus died as an example. Jesus is our example. Um, and you and I, if we, we don't have a, a context for that, might listen and agree. And we might say, oh, that's very helpful. That's very, very true, very good. But we must be careful that we understand sometimes the theologies and the worldviews from which teaching Jesus exclusively as an example come from. Namely, the rejection of the biblical teaching of sin. And the rejection of the biblical teaching that Jesus Christ died for lost sinners. Hyperemphasis on the example of Jesus Christ, which I, I believe everyone can agree on, including people who reject the divinity of Jesus, that He is God with us, is a, a product of false belief. Uh, it, it is something that, that people are teaching to, to get around the saving truth that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners and to do so by his death, that he had to die. And what I want you to understand tonight is why Jesus had to die. Have you ever been asked that question? Why did Jesus have to die? Oh, wasn't it such an injustice? And of course it was. We're not denying that. But why did he have to die? As a Christian, you are a Christian because Jesus died. And people will say, well, couldn't God just have declared everyone forgiven? Couldn't God just have, have sent Jesus into the world to live and then he could have gone back to heaven and we could follow his teaching. No, Jesus had to die. Why did he have to die? And not only did Jesus have to die, literally, physically, bodily, dead, as dead as anyone you know who is dead or as dead as any of those who are commemorated today um, were killed, so too is Jesus literally, physically, bodily, truly risen. And you cannot have meaning in one without the other. And I want us simply and clearly to understand how and why that, that is. So from the text before us, uh, let's, let's look at that text. And in it, I trust we shall see these principles that we confess. First of all, think with me about what Jesus did we're told in our statement of faith that, that 
God's son, who we already ascertained last week is Jesus, um, died at Calvary to effect propitiation, reconciliation, redemption, and atonement. Let's, let's stop there. In the text that we just read, Romans 5, 6 through 10, we see each of these things. Maybe not fully developed, but enough that each of them are present. And we can talk about them from just this text. Propitiation. Do you know what propitiation is? No? Propitiation. Some shake your heads no. Some, some say yes, I, I do know. Propitiation is simply this. It is to satisfy wrath. Or if you, if you prefer, justice. But, um, uh, and, and sometimes when I'm talking with people who just can't wrap their heads around wrath without associating it with sinful wrath, sinful anger and rage. I'll speak of justice because that is a word that our society appreciates. Justice. Jesus died to satisfy justice. Now, of course, I know what I mean by justice. The wrath of God. The wrath of God upon sinners. We've established in previous weeks that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We've established that we are totally affected by our sinfulness and that we are characteristically unable to, in and of ourselves, apart from the power of God within us, respond to God's law and God's gospel. We are in rebellion against God. Total rebellion against Him. The good things that we do are done by God's common grace. According to the things that he gives to us, he enables us to do those things. Anyone in this world who does good things, do good things by the grace of God. Even if they don't know the grace of God, even if they don't believe in God, it is the grace of God that is enabling us to do good. Um, uh, Such are the... uh, implications of sin in our world and the impact of sin upon this world. So God is righteously angry. His anger is not characterized by sin. It is characterized by righteousness. It is characterized by holiness. Do not pretend that you don't understand that because If someone hurts you, or maybe it's not you, maybe maybe it's someone close to you, you will be angry. Are you wrong to be angry? There are some who have guilt-tripped themselves into thinking that they're always wrong to be angry, and that's that's not true. Um, I I ran into someone uh, in the community a while back, and um, uh, she was suffering, just discouraged, depressed, and she's talking about evil people doing evil things against her and her life, and uh, she, she lives a very lonely, isolated life in many ways, I think. And, and I, I, I'm, I, I was saddened to, to hear all of this. And I, I, I wanted to help her, so I encouraged her to read Psalms. Because the Psalms communicate to us so much of the prayers of a righteously angry person against evil around them and a faith an unwavering faith in a God who is righteously angry with sin and with sinners. The unfortunate thing was, uh, and I trust that we'll be able to work through that, but as she 
read it, she found herself agreeing too much with the anger of God. And she felt bad about that, which is making me more angry. And uh, I, I was like, is it wrong to be more angry with sin? I think it is if your anger is always directed at other people's sin exclusively. And there's never anger against yourself in your own sin. I think that can be problematic. That leads to hypocrisy and uh, um, uh, the sort of behavior that we see various sectarian groups in Jesus' day practicing, not least the Pharisees. Uh, but it's not wrong, full stop, to be angry. Someone lies to you. They deceive you. Your anger is a reflection of God's character. It is. Someone abuses you or someone else. Your anger is a, an evidence, if you will, of the image of God in you. You're reflecting God's righteous character. Now, of course, there are ways that we can, we can because we're sinners too, quickly cease to reflect God's righteous character in how we act upon that anger and how we demonstrate that anger, but that there is something wrong with this belief or there is something wrong with this behavior is a reflection of God's character. That's where propitiation comes in. God is angry that people have messed up the perfect world he created. And who wouldn't be? As a, as a child, I uh, loved Legos. I say as a child, I still would if I had the time uh, and energy and all of that. Uh, I know a few weeks ago, we went to the Lego store, Zeth and myself and uh, Hannah as well. And um, uh, I, anytime I'm in a place like that, uh, mentally, I become uh, a child again. And I have no intention of, of buying anything in that shop, but um, uh, it's actually fun and enjoyable to, to look. And for me to reminisce about the various constructions that I, I used to make. Um, my brother Reagan, my twin brother Reagan, was uh, not always particularly sensitive to my creative um, uh, abilities, constructive uh, interests. He would, uh, I would build something and he thought it was, it was funny to destroy it. So like, you know, oh, we're playing some sort of battle thing. You know, uh, you know, I have, I have my, uh, you know, little Lego setup going on here and everything's built up. The castle is all in place and I have every, everyone going about their life and I'm playing out my own imaginative narrative and, and he's not, not some toy, but he himself is suddenly the, the monster who comes and destroys it all. And uh, it is a nuclear assault. There is no, no rebuilding <laughs> possible. Now, um, if, if we within our own childlike state find ourselves enraged by the demolition of a structure of plastic cubes. How do you think the Lord God, who reigns in 
perfect sovereignty and is beautiful in all that he is and all that he does and all of his ways and created a beautiful world, likes it when he sees what we have done to the place. Justice, wrath, holy justice, holy wrath, righteous completely. And propitiation is Jesus satisfying that wrath, turning it away, diverting it so that it doesn't come upon you and me, but he takes it himself. You say, I, I, I don't really feel comfortable with that. Remember, Jesus gave himself up. He was not coerced. He was not forced. This was an agreement of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit from before the foundations of the earth to save those people we most recently spoke about, the elect of God chosen from before the foundations of the world unto the adoption of sons and all of that from Ephesians chapter 1. How is that adoption of sons possible? By the blood of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ gave his life on the cross to satisfy God's wrath and justice. I know we often think first of Jesus saving us from our sins. But can we for a moment realize that Jesus saved us from God, from himself, from the justice of God. Sa saving us from God in the first place. That's not the full picture because that would be odd if that's, that's it. He's not saved us to godlessness, saved us to atheism or whatever. God has saved us, though, from himself. His righteous character, which would have been experienced by us punitively, painfully, forever. And the text before us says that Jesus saved us from the wrath of God. Christ died for us, verse, verse um, 8 says. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Do you understand that? Propitiation. Jesus taking our sins. And we're told in scripture, God made him who knew no sin to be sin. And he took it all. The anger of God upon sin. Jesus took that on the cross. Friends, I want you to think about, and, and I, not in a way that makes you guilty, that burdens you, but in a way that makes you free. I want you to think about the sins that you have committed. Think for a moment about the most heinous thing that you have done. Think about what it deserves from God, the perfect God, who does not tolerate any evil, who cannot look at evil and let it pass. 
Think about that. What you said, Monica. What you did, Philo. What you thought, Natasha. Jesus paid it all. Jesus satisfied the wrath of God. Your sin made that sacrifice necessary. Remember that. Your sin put Jesus on the cross. But we confess that not to guilt anyone, but to remind ourselves that such is the love of God that Jesus Christ gave himself for our sins to satisfy the wrath of God. That's propitiation. We could talk about that a lot more. But there's something else. Reconciliation. Jesus saves us from God, but Jesus also saves us to God. So he's not saving us from, from the presence of God, but he's saving us from the wrath of God so that we can enter the presence of God. He sorts out the anger of the Lord so that we can go into his presence and experience the joy of the Lord. Verse 10 says, For while we were enemies, if while we were enemies, we were, rec we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Verse 11 says, So reconciliation is when you have two parties that are estranged, that are divided. And uh, uh, to reconcile is, in the most simple of terms, to get back together. Is it not? So if, if you are having an argument, arguments might not be that deep, but they, they, they can have implications for how you relate. And you might confide in someone about this dispute or this argument. And next time you see that person, they'll, they'll ask, have you and... This person, have you reconciled? <coughs> have you gotten back together? Ha have, have you made up? Ha has the, the um, two parties met and come to an agreement? Reconciliation isn't always straightforward, is it? One of the reasons we don't reconcile is because it's never our fault as we see it. It's someone else's fault. Someone else's responsibility to make the first move. Maybe it is our fault, okay? And we might understand it's our fault, but perhaps we feel at such a disadvantage that we can't make the fir that, that first move. And we don't necessarily want that person to come to us and... and, and, and uh, uh, Speak with us, but we kind of do. We want them to, we want them to raise the subject so we can say, you know, I've been, Sister Myrna, I've, I've, I've really been thinking about that. And um, I'm glad that you mention it now. I'm sorry. I was in the wrong. Please forget what I said and what I did. I, I, please forgive me. Uh, and, and let's, you know, be friends or whatever. 
reconciliation does not uh, happen easily. It seldom happens in such a scripted manner. Normally, it is uh, uh, a more protracted, more painful at a human level. But imagine God, the perfect God, the sovereign God above all things, perfect in all his ways, and and you who've rebelled against him, you cannot enter his presence and live. You are his enemy. And we're told that uh, in, in Psalm 97, I remember that very clearly simply because it's the second sermon I ever preached and I memorized the whole psalm back at that time and it, it, it works. It says that a fire burns before him, consuming his enemies round about. And you are his enemies. I am his enemy. Unless someone else takes the fire. Someone else represents us. Someone else pays the price. Someone else satisfies wrath and brings us to God. So Jesus doesn't just satisfy divine justice. and Because that's how some people conceptualize it. Jesus paid for our sins on the cross. Now you need to get to God. Listen carefully and attentively to how you yourself and others may present the gospel. Sometimes it sounds like that. Jesus paid the price for your sins. Now you need to come to God. You need to, to reach out to him. The gospel is that God has reached out to you in Jesus. This, uh, this is not a uh, God has come halfway. Now you need to come the rest of the way situation. No, we could never reach God. So God came all the way to us. And in coming all the way to us, God coming to us, when we couldn't come to God, God brings us home, brings us into his family. Jesus Christ dies on the cross for our sins to satisfy justice, to satisfy wrath, and to bring us to God. It is not a matter of us working to meet God halfway. It is a matter of us trusting that Jesus has paid it all. That Jesus has satisfied justice. And that simply trusting in Jesus Christ and taking hold of his righteousness and who he is and what he has done. And believing in that is enough. And that he is here with you and within you and with us. That is good news. And there, there are some that are, are and, and trust me, I, I understand this, uh, the, the, the impulse to, um, you know, to work. We should work. We're called to work. We're supposed to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to work of his good pleasure. The salvation comes completely from God. We're simply showing it. It's all of grace. And all of faith. And it's all a gift. But as we trust in Jesus Christ, we, we walk in the fruits of his reconciliation. We've spoken about that from 2 Corinthians not long ago. So I shall move on. Um, uh, but uh, we see that we who were enemies have been reconciled to God, verse 10 and verse 11. But our statement also speaks of redemption, doesn't it? 
What is redemption? If you were to do a quick search online, you'd get a few results, fairly straightforward definitions. Uh, salvation from sin, error, or evil. So it's we're saved. We're saved from God. We're saved to God. We're also saved from sin. But there's a stronger definition that um, uh, is much more suited to uh, this text. And that is the action of regaining or gaining possession of something in exchange for payment or clearing a debt. And thus the, the, the scriptures speak of Jesus paying um, a, a ransom at times, a, a payment for us, a, a, a fee, a penalty. Uh, it, it, there are different words that are used that have different images and different meanings. But at the end of it, Jesus pays a price and he gets something back. What, does he, what, what, what is the price that he pays? Well, we might say the wages of sin is death. And you've heard me say it, the wages of sin is death, and Jesus paid the wages. Jesus got paid the wages. And we live in that purchase. He has received his people in exchange for payment. Sometimes I'll, I'll talk about adoption papers and adoption fees. Jesus paid the fees. He, he selected the child. He filled out the forms. He paid the fees. And he, he, he submitted uh, all of it. And he got his people. And they're his. And they're his forever. Redemption. The text says uh, on um, multiple occasions that we are saved by him. Much more, now that we are reconciled, verse 10 says, shall we be saved by his life. The emphasis up to that point has been on his death. And, and, and how uh, Jesus has satisfied wrath and justice by his death. How he's brought us to God uh, by his death. He took enemies and made them not only friends but family. And now we see we're saved by his life. What we talked about last time. The perfection of Jesus' life. Jesus lived the life that we should have lived but couldn't live. And so... We were in debit, if you're thinking in accounting terms, we were in debit, and Jesus lived completely in credit. I seem to remember, Javier, you like numbers. You like accounting. You'd like to be an accountant, I think you said. It's a toss-up between football and accountancy. One of the two will work out for you very well, either way. Um, uh, Lord willing. We want to encourage that. Fantastic. But you have debit and you have credit. What if you start your life in debit? And that's what we've done with sin. We're, we, and then, okay, if, if your bank account starts in debit, like when you open an account, you have a debit. And then you open your account, it's debit, and then you open an account so that you can 
use it, spend money, and you're just in a perpetual overdraft, getting more and more in debit. Even when you think you've added something that's a credit, it isn't really. Well, more debit. But Jesus starts in credit, sinlessly perfect. Starts there. And with everything he is and with everything he does, credit, credit, credit. It says even our sinless Savior learned obedience. The Bible talks about that. He's like, he's the perfect child, but he learns credit. He engages with people, you know, asking and answering questions in the temple. Credit, his parents come and get him. He says, you know, I didn't, you know, I'd be in my father's house. And, you know, he's honoring his heavenly father, credit. But he goes back to his earthly father's place, credit. And then I imagine he worked very hard. His craftsmanship was impeccable, credit. And all of it's credit. But all of us is debit. But Jesus takes all of his credit from all eternity and all of life. And he pours that into our account. What then happens? We're told in the Bible, as we trust in him, it is credited to us as righteousness. Our unrighteousness, our debit, goes over to his account. His righteousness goes over to ours. Does that make sense? Redemption. He's bought us. He's purchased us. And he can take it. He can handle it. Because there are eternal, fathomless depths of credit in him. That's all he is. Atonement. Sometimes people are like, oh, what's the difference between all of these things? There are differences. Um, uh, redemption is fundamentally about, the, uh, in many ways, the, the result. Um, uh, it is uh, we are saved by him. Atonement is uh, the basis on which we have that result. We're saved by him. We are reconciled to him. Justice is satisfied. All of those things. How? By the atoning work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Again, looking at the text. Christ died for the ungodly. This is the act that accomplishes propitiation, reconciliation, and redemption. Atonement is a repair done for the sake of something bad that has happened. So, not picking on Javier tonight, but I might as well. Um, you, sorry, the accountancy football thing works very well. Going to football, when someone has done something earlier in the match, and they've messed up a bit, but they go on and they make, a, they make a goal. Someone might actually say, oh, he's atoned for what he did earlier. I, I know I've heard commentators say that, even though it's not 
you know, necessarily my thing. I'll hear people say, oh, he's, he, he atoned for earlier in the match. How? He, repaired, he, he made a repair. He, he, he repaired that which was bad, which had happened. Just think about it very simply. And this can be abused, this understanding. But um, it's actually not wrong. The idea behind the word is very simple. The English word. At one meant. Two parties are divided due to the fault of one of these parties. To bridge this divide and heal the wounds of division, the party in the wrong must make amends for the wrong that has been done. Saying sorry doesn't cut it. Because there are emotional and material consequences for what has been done. The party in the wrong must do something that meaningfully shows they are sorry. But more seriously, they must face the consequences and pay the price for the damage they have done. By doing so, the two that were divided are brought back into unity and wholeness. They are at one. The Bible teaches us that the eternal Son of God became sinless, though tempted man, in Jesus Christ to represent us. During his three-year ministry, this Jesus commanded people to turn away from their sins, to follow God, and, and, and he condemned those who refused to do so. He did do that. But it, it, it was an open offer to people to come to him. Why would someone not Trust in him to get that repair, that salvation. <clears throat> the all-pervading message of the gospel is that Christ lovingly died an exemplary, selfless death in perfect, once and for all sacrifice on a cross, thus satisfying the righteous wrath of the Father by substituting himself for us, enduring what rebellious mankind deserved washing away sin and delivering sinners from the penalty and power of sin. By purposefully, not accidentally, dying on the cross, Christ definitely accomplished all that he actually intended to achieve, particularly the salvation of his people that is applied to them upon their repentance and faith. Hebrews 10, therefore, emphasizes that there is no further sacrifice for sin, no crucifixion, no atonement, no penance is needed, for we have been sanctified, that is, set apart for God through the offering of the body of Jesus once for all time. That's what Jesus did. That's why we're here. That's good news. Now, there's a lot, a lot more there. And this is meant to be an introductory um, uh, thing. It's a bit disjointed. There's a list of words, and then it, oh, it says for select people, and all of you wanted me to focus on that probably. Oh, what is that about? Well, let me hasten on. Time is ticking. Don't just think about what Jesus did. Think about for whom Jesus did it. What does the text say? Let's just focus on the text. The weak, yeah, verse 6, while we were still weak, the ungodly, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly, 
clarifies that there's nothing really commendable about us that would cause him to die for us. One would scarcely die for a righteous person. Well, maybe they might, they might stretch to that. But we were still sinners. Who's we? Who's us? Well, obviously the context is the Apostle Paul and everyone who's with him on one side writing this letter and everyone who's receiving the letter on the other hand, uh, that is the, uh, uh, the church in Rome or uh, actually as you read Romans chapter 16, you'll get the sense that there's a, there's a church in Rome, but there's, it's kind of made up. That church is made up of a, one might say, a network really of, uh, of house churches or uh, various uh, gatherings of, of believers that, that constitute that. Um, so he's writing to them, of course, God uh, has preserved his word and uh, the early church identified this as apostolic writing, as scripture that is true and um, uh, inspired by God. And so we can take this. We know very clearly then that we as the people of God who have experienced the salvation of God, who are trusting in him, we can say this is for us. If you are trusting in Jesus Christ, you can say without any hesitation, this was for me. There are other disputes throughout Christian history that people have gotten bogged down into about the, uh, the extent of the atonement. Sometimes I've often felt, I have my perspective, doubtless, and um, I do confess what the statement confesses, that there is a unique way in which Jesus Christ, to quote Paul in his letter to the Ephesians, loved the church and gave himself for her. And I believe that there is a... Um, a clear logic to God before the foundations of the earth, uh, choosing people in him for the adoption of sons and Jesus paying the price for those people. But as I, I trust I was clear a couple of weeks ago, it is not for us to plumb the depths of who those people are, to number the innumerable host. Uh, our focus first is as Christians assurance am, am I trusting in Jesus then I'm assured that he did this for me whatever way you slice it the salvation purchased by the atoning work of Christ is applied only to those who repent and believe no one questions that that is that a limitation it's a limitation in extent, but it is not a limitation in power. And it is not a limitation in offer. We believe in an atonement that was definitely accomplished. Jesus actually paid it all on the cross. We believe in an atonement that is particularly applied. Only those who repent of sin and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ shall be saved. We believe in an atonement that is universally proclaimed. So we go into the world and call all people everywhere, so far as we are enabled, to repent and believe the good news of Jesus Christ. 
And we do that knowing that there will be people who are saved. And they will stand with total assurance and total confidence. Jesus died for me. And I can say with total assurance and confidence to anyone. Jesus died for our sins on the cross. So that if you repent of your sin and believe in Jesus you will be saved. And you can join us in saying, for me, it was for me that he died. My sins put him on the cross, but I'm not saying it's for me he died in judgment, but it was for me he died in grace. Jesus said, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Salvation is of the Lord, and it is enjoyed only by all those who trust in him. The innumerable hosts of believers for whom Christ died are sometimes referred to as sheep in Scripture. They're also referred to as his friends, and they are described as gifts from the Father to the Son who grow in number as more believe. We know that these are those who are chosen by God unto salvation, as we saw a few weeks ago. We know that these are those who are adopted into his family. And we know that Christ left the church and gave himself up for her. And we freely, joyfully, boldly confess that so that everyone can know it and so that everyone can have an opportunity to respond to the goodness of that message. And we know As the book of Acts puts it, as many as were appointed unto eternal life believed. How do we know this? God bore testimony to his acceptance of his son's work by raising him from the dead for our justification. Where is that in the text? Well, it it says that we will be Saved by his life, doesn't it? Much more at the end of verse 10. Now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? Why should you limit that to his life before the cross? For he, he is risen. He lives forever. Uh, Marvelously and miraculously, supernaturally to us, but quite naturally to God and his capabilities. In three days, the body of Jesus was raised back up as promised and stands forever as a testimony to God's justice, punishing sins, and God's justification of his people, purifying repentant and believing sinners. Those who come to Jesus can freely confess sin and know that Jesus is praying for you. In, in, in Jesus, all who, who trust in him find righteousness to make you clean. Sanctification to keep you clean and to set you apart for special use. And redemption that buys you with a price, treasures you and keeps you forever. So ours is the same message as Peter on the day of Pentecost. God raised him up having released him from the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held in death's power. 
Ours is the same message as the Apostle Paul. Later in um, um, uh, this, this letter, Jesus was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. And ours is the message of Jesus himself. This is why the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it back up again. No one takes it away from me, but I lay it down of my own free will. I have the authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it back again. Those who believe in Jesus, not just in the intellectual, historical sense, he's a real person, but really and truly trust in him and are committed to following Jesus, confess that because of our sins, he was given over to die, and he was raised to life in order to put us right with God. Even our world understands the concept, no justice, no peace. We've heard that before, have we not? We've heard it on the television. Some people may even have been to marches where they heard people saying, no justice, no peace. Friends, because of Jesus' death, in the same way that we share by grace through faith in the benefits purchased by the death of Christ, we are assured of those benefits and enjoy the blessings of the resurrection of Christ. Jesus has satisfied justice, and so we have peace. He satisfied justice on the cross and in his resurrection. We, we have proof of that. And so we have peace. And we live in power because we're people of the risen king. That means we have a savior who is not done. And therefore, we as his people are not done. Nor are we done in by anything or anyone that might assault us. This we believe. Let's read it together in closing again. We believe that God's son died at Calvary to effect propitiation reconciliation, redemption, and atonement for his elect people. God bore testimony to his acceptance of his son's work by raising him from the dead for our justification. Herein is good news. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would help us um, uh, to rejoice, to be glad, to give thanks, to live in gratitude for your glory as people who are trusting in a crucified and risen Savior. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.